Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. Hi, this is Perry Marshall, and today we are featuring an interview between Ryan Bissett and Dennis Noble. And Ryan has a podcast called Chasing Reality, and Dennis Noble, to diehard Evolution 2.0 fans, needs no introduction. He's one of the prize judges. He's a member, a fellow of the Royal Society, and an Oxford professor, a very renowned physiologist and has become the Martin Luther of evolutionary biology. And in this interview, Ryan and Dennis discuss why it's not good enough to just put lipstick on the pig, shall we say, and make a few tweaks and modifications to evolutionary theory. But the public has to actually understand that the theory has been completely taken apart and put back together in a revolutionary way. Also, before we get to the interview, just want to remind you that a highly abridged version of Evolution 2.0 is on the podcast feed at the very beginning of the list of programs, and you can scroll down and you can listen to those. And I also want to remind you to subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash evolution2 and uh, take full advantage of the information that we're putting out. So here is Dennis Noble and Ryan Bissett. Hello and Hare Krishna. It is Ryan here, uh, a.k.a. Ramananda Das by some. And we're very fortunate on today's Chasing Reality podcast to be joined by Professor Dennis Noble from the University of Oxford. I very much enjoyed his writings over the last few years since I've come to know about him taking great inspiration. Uh, in a sense, I wish I'd only, my, my only wish is that I'd known about his thoughts earlier in my scientific career before I got out of working in the lab. I'm looking forward to hearing what he has to say today. Uh, he's, he's the writer of two main books from 2006, The Music of Life, and 2016, Dance to the Tune of Life, Biological Relativity. I very much recommend you picking them up because they're a great read. Um, very easy to read and very, very important books. So thank you very much, Professor Dennis Noble, for joining me today on this Chasing Reality podcast. Um, I'm actually very honoured. I've been following your work closely over the last few years. I've read both of your books, uh, right. The Music of Life in 2006 and 2016, Biological Relativity, Dance to the Tune of Life. And I found them very refreshing very Thank much. you. I noticed that you're, you're part of a group online called The Third Way of Evolution. Exactly so. And I just wanted you to tell me a little bit about this, maybe in terms of the history, the biology. What is it and why do we need such a thing? We shouldn't need it at all. Okay. That's a short answer. But there's a longer answer, obviously, because there's a long history to this. 
And I'm afraid it goes all the way back to 1883. Charles Darwin died in 1882, so he would not have known what happened very soon after his death. Mm -hmm. Because in 1883, August Weissmann, a great German geneticist, well, I describe him as a geneticist, actually, of course, genetics and certainly not DNA was not known in the way that we know it today, sure. but he was concerned with inheritance. And August Weissmann took Darwin's ideas and he was shocked by parts of Darwin's book, The Origin of Species. His shock was that Darwin in about 12 places in The Origin of Species accepts Lamarck's ideas on the inheritance of acquired characteristics. Mm. August Weissmann was of the view that there is no way in which the body, the soma, could influence the germline. That idea is what we now call Weissmann's barrier. Okay. Now, it's often thought that Darwin must have agreed with that. He certainly did not, because not only in the origin of species does he refer in 12 places to accepting Lamarck's idea, he also developed a theory for how it could happen. It's in one of the later books, The Domestication of Animals and Plants. What he said was, I think there must be tiny particles that go through the fluids of the body and can influence the germline. He called them gemmules. His gemmules are what we now call exosomes. We know that exosomes go straight down to the germline. The DNA in them, the RNA in them, can get incorporated into the fused egg and sperm. It can get incorporated into the genome. That's all been demonstrated, uh, actually, by one of the third-way scientists, Corrado Spadafora uh, in Rome. Now, why am I giving you this little bit of history over, what is it now, 130 years old? Because it's crucial. Weissmann's idea was never debated with Darwin because, after all, Darwin passed away a year before he presented it in a great lecture. But it formed the cornerstone of the main theory of evolutionary biology today, which is called the modern synthesis, sometimes also called neo-Darwinism. And for those who don't know very much about the academic aspects of biology, a good way to sum that up is that it is what Richard Dawkins describes in The Selfish Gene. Now, we've known actually, for a long time, that many aspects of that idea must be wrong. 70 years ago, at least, Barbara McClintock, who was working on plants, who was actually working on Indian corn, mm -hmm. showed that under stress, the plant could transfer bits of genetic material from one chromosome to another. The plant was effectively saying, of course, I don't mean consciously, but he was effectively saying, I'm under stress. Let's see what happens if I just shuffle my cards. Let's see if I can get a different solution to the problem of responding to the stress. Okay, I see. 
And she was told in 1957, I think it was, that her discovery should not be referred to in papers she was publishing because nobody believed her. 1983, I think it was, at the age of 81, she won the Nobel Prize for what we now call mobile genetic elements. Now, the reason I'm saying all of this is that actually we have known that there are major breaks in relation to the Weissman barrier for a very long time. So why have people not admitted it? You won't find what I've just described in most of the textbooks of evolutionary biology. You certainly won't find the way in which DNA can pass from sperm to egg. And indeed, egg cells can also pick up DNA from the fluids of the body and RNAs which control the DNA. The reason why we formed the Third Way of Evolution website, which now has something like 60 or 70 uh, senior people, all of them published books and major articles on evolutionary biology, is that as a group, we found it very strange to be faced with this situation in which it's been known for a long time that the simple assumptions of neo-Darwinism, or what's called the modern synthesis, cannot be sufficient on their own, yet you don't find this taught in schools, you don't find it in the textbooks, and until recently it was also quite dangerous even to go public, as I've done now for more than 12 years, um, with doubts and serious doubts about the modern synthesis and what we now call neo-Darwinism. So there was no other way to make sure that other academics and the public know that there's a very substantial group of us who wish to see research on evolutionary biology open up to Mm. these new trends, which are very important, but which are also old trends, because as I said, they were found many years ago, they've been ignored. Thank you. That's a very comprehensive answer to my question. It's, it's something that I, I feel very strongly about because I was taught through those textbooks, which you're talking about and nowhere did I see anything like this. Yeah, um, that's right. And you bring that point out because I actually think things will only change when the textbooks change. Well, that's one of my questions actually, Dennis, how do textbooks change? I'm a bit naive to this process of how it, academia interacts with the process of, of teaching outside in schools and colleges and universities. How does that happen? Is there a particular process or, or, or is it just whatever seems in vogue gets picked up? Yeah, that's a very good and very deep question. Of course, if what you're doing is advancing science in what I might call an incremental way, It's not too difficult for textbook writers to adjust and edit their textbooks as they do every five to ten years. So if what you're doing relates already to existing well-established ideas, then I think it's gradual and it's not too difficult. It takes time, of course, for the textbooks to catch up. I think that's reasonable because some of the developments that a novel just peter out. But this certainly hasn't petered out. So that's not the explanation. Mm. I think the explanation is a social and cultural one. And it is this. 
maybe the people who might listen to this podcast will not know the nature of the situation in the United States, but let me just briefly describe it, because I work in the United States as well as here in the UK quite frequently. Okay. I collaborate with a lot of United States people. The debate over evolution over there is hotly contested in a way that we don't really see here in Europe. It's contested, of course, by very strongly fundamentalist Christians. Mm -hmm. Now, I respect their faith. I've no quarrel with that. What I find very difficult to understand is their position in relation to science, because apart from strongly fundamentalist groups here in the United Kingdom and perhaps also in Europe, there are very few people now who seriously challenge the general theory of evolution. That is that organisms are developed from other organisms. Yes. And you don't find the Archbishop of Canterbury questioning that idea. You don't find the leaders of other churches and religious groups challenging that idea in a serious way. In the United States, you do. And I know middle America as well as the east and west coast. And you'll be surprised the extent to which just talking with ordinary people in relation to this question of whether they think we have or have not evolved from other animals, the very large numbers who think that cannot possibly be true. Now, I think that puts the evolutionary biologists in the United States in a very particular social situation, which we need to understand, yes. which is that many of them have also used evolutionary biology to attack religion. Now, that's, that's their right. That's fine. Again, I've no particular quarrel with that, though I wouldn't wish to be involved with that myself. But the consequence is that the stakes are very high. Mm -hmm. This is a, a very hot issue in the United States. It's not a hot issue in the same way in Europe. Now, it's not a surprise, therefore, that when I organized a meeting on new trends in evolutionary biology at the top academy of science here in the United Kingdom and the top academy of humanities and social sciences here, that is the Royal Society and the British Academy, three years ago in 2016, I received the information that evolutionary biologists in the United Kingdom were worried about this meeting because they had received messages from colleagues in the United States saying, this is a disaster. How can a meeting like this be organized by somebody who openly challenges neo-Darwinism in his lectures? That's me, Dennis. I see. Okay. Now, this, I think, gives us an insight in what is going on. It is not just a matter of the science. This is a matter of a very hot and lively debate that is still occurring in the United States and which I think has polarized the issue to the point at which it seems to me the writers of the textbook simply don't risk, if that's the right way to put it, mm -hmm. uh, putting those new trends out. There's a kind of community of people who defend the fortress, if I might put it that way, of neo-Darwinism. I've never in my long career in science encountered anything like it. I've had controversies in my own field of physiological science, but I've never encountered a situation where 
there's a kind of dogmatism in reverse. The dogmatism here is that the neo-Darwinist synthesis must be protected, must be regarded as absolute, because we've told the religious right in the United States that it is absolute and absolutely certain. Now, that's my amateur sociological analysis of what has gone on. And I think it's not, therefore, um, just a coincidence that the major opposition to a meeting here in the United Kingdom, which incidentally was very successful, highly attended, and with a, a very good publication that came out from it. Yes. Not a coincidence that the opposition came from the United States. There is a fear there, I think, on the part of standard evolutionary biologists that if they admit that they were wrong, the religious right will be, well, to put a usual phrase on it, laughing down their beards. <laughs> now, I think they're wrong to think that. I, I mean, science is science, and it should advance according to what the evidence shows. But there is my somewhat amateur sociological analysis of what I think has happened. But I have direct experience of it, because as I said, I, I live and work sometimes in the United States with colleagues there. I know middle America, where all of this is rampant. Therefore, know that I'm partly right. Whether it's the whole explanation, I really can't say. Thank you. That's very, very helpful. And the way you looked at that from the, the, the standpoint of um, the European uh, socio-political environment versus the United States, it raises a question in me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which, sure. which is, I can imagine even in that kind of an environment where you're holding on, where someone's holding on to the, the neo-Darwinist viewpoint very strongly, small changes could be accepted perhaps. Yeah. So, so my question is, what is the fear must be coming from something that seems like a radical shift that's needed? And so I was wondering what it is that's being proposed that could put in place instead of neo-Darwinism or, or maybe something tagged onto it. Well, these are very good questions. First of all, it is true to say that neo-Darwinists in the United States have, of course, accepted quite a lot of the developments and changes that have occurred and which show that the modern synthesis or neo-Darwinism is not itself sufficient as it was formulated roughly 70 years ago. So you're quite right, there are many biologists in the United States who would say, okay, we have extended the theory. Isn't that sufficient for you? So your question is a very good one. Why do I think it is not sufficient? I think that is best explained by asking the question, how has neo-Darwinism been presented to the public? I'm not talking now about academics talking at academic meetings, where what I've just said would be readily accepted. Yes, we've extended the theory, we've added this, we've added that, no problem. I'm talking about how it is perceived by the general public. And sadly, the books that have the great influence there are Richard Dawkins' The Selfish Gene and Dan Dennett's Darwin's Dangerous Idea, both of which give no hint whatsoever that these changes have occurred mm -hmm. and these developments have occurred. That is the problem. So I find that when I discuss with particularly 
no longer among scientists. Among scientists, much of what I say is just so they say, well, what's the problem, Dennis? You know, all of this is obvious. <laughs> but with the general public, there's a very different situation. And not only the general public, incidentally, with people working in the social sciences like economics and sociology, yes. who are now using genomics, incidentally, in order to study sociology. I mean, what they do, of course, is very close to the dangerous idea of can we characterize people by their genomes? And can we then start asking the dangerous question, are there good genomes and bad genomes? And how do you <laughs> correct the bad ones? I mean, this is, it is highly dangerous. And we've seen that with the outrage, of course, that came uh, from experiments in China on children and babies to actually change the genome in the embryonic uh, stage, or in the earlier than embryonic stage, which, of course, nearly all scientists around the world condemned as far too dangerous, because, of course, it would affect generations to come. Now, the point I think I'm making here is that the change needs to be in the popular presentation of evolutionary biology. Moreover, I'd go further and say that the view that I'm expressing, which is that the language of neo-Darwinism is part of the problem, would produce a view of evolutionary biology which is much softer, much more nuanced. Instead of, for example, genes created as body and mind, that's a direct quote from the selfish gene, I would say we control our genes. We are the medium through which our culture, our environment, our interrelations with other people, with other organisms, influence through the no longer doubted control of the genome. The genome is controlled by the organism itself. Outside a cell, a DNA sequence can do nothing whatsoever. That's why viruses are not alive. They've got mm. to go into a cell in order to use the cell's machinery to reproduce. So just taking that one example, genes created as body and mind, well, it's simply wrong. It's not a matter of nuancing it. It's incorrect. Moreover, and I'm, I'm sure Richard Dawkins would agree with this point, to attribute selfishness to a piece of a molecule <laughs> is very odd. <laughs> no, you and I can be selfish. <laughs> I wish I have that inclination. <laughs> My poor DNA can't be selfish. And indeed, a few years ago, I published an article showing that it's actually an empty hypothesis. The only way you could test selfishness for a sequence in a bit of DNA is to find out whether it succeeds in reproducing better than its competitors in future generations. So the very term selfish gene, the only way to sort of ask the question, you know, can we show that this gene is selfish, is to find out whether its frequency in the subsequent generations increases. Now that may seem obvious, and of course to readers of the selfish gene, it does seem obvious. Mm -hmm. But actually, it's philosophically speaking, an empty statement, because what is the experiment you could do to test that idea. You first define a selfish gene, perhaps as the 
genes that are successful in the future generations, increasing their numbers. But what's the test for that? It is, do they increase their numbers? You can't have a hypothesis whose main definition of its key component in the hypothesis is the very thing that would enable you to make a prediction. The prediction can't itself be the definition. I mean, it's a philosophical point, but it's an obvious one. So I think the difficulty lies, and this is why I think we need a, a revolution in our thinking about mm. evolutionary biology, I think the problem lies in the language that has been used. It's metaphorical. People sometimes criticize me for using metaphors. I've openly done that with the music of life and the, the new one, Dance to the Tune of Life. The fact is, though, if you read them carefully and you go towards the end of my book, The Music of Life, what I say at the end is this. The reason for introducing that metaphor is to compare it with the alternative metaphor, that is, genes created as body and mind. What I'm demonstrating is you can let go of your metaphors. You don't have to be taken in by them. You don't have to believe them. You can use them. Metaphors are there to be used. Mm -hmm. and what I'm really saying, therefore, is not believe my metaphor rather than somebody else's. It is remember that metaphors are just metaphors. And you've got to then ask the question, what do they do? What do they make you think? The best move then is to say, okay, give up the metaphors and just look at what the facts are. The facts are why the third wave evolution was formed, because all the people on that website are very concerned about people ignoring the facts that have been discovered over quite a long period of time, but which are now accumulating in a very rapid way. And what I'm picking up as you're speaking is, is that there's a real resurgence of the idea of the return of the organism is, is the yeah. way that I understand it. And instead of the, the organism is in control. Yes. That's right. Yes. And that, that... I mean, not entirely so, because obviously, you know, somebody's got cystic fibrosis that that is a genetic disorder. No question about it. There sure. are certain uh, forms of genetic change that you can do nothing about other than perhaps have a drug that helps you with coping with it possibly also some degree of, of gene therapy. Obviously, I don't disagree with that. But generally, the interesting thing is that most changes in the genome don't have much effect. The, the genome-wide association studies have shown that. The correlations between uh, particular genes and function is not extremely strong in most cases. You have to accumulate the correlations with a large number of genes before you arrive at a good possible uh, genetic component. Let me just take one example of that. Look at athletes and ask, what is it that makes a really good athlete? Now, you might think, okay, they've got to have the genes for being a good athlete. And I agree with that. Don't disagree with that. If you've got the cystic fibrosis problem, you certainly won't be a terribly good athlete. Yeah, so yeah. in certain respects, it must be true. It is obviously true. But when you do the analysis, do you find a few genes that can be able to explain why you've got a top athlete rather than somebody who couldn't even run a mile? The answer is no. What you find is hundreds of correlation, and each of them with a fairly small degree of correlation. What does that tell us? It tells us that we're not, as it were, 
fully determined in that kind of way. And you can demonstrate that. There are lovely studies now looking at identical twins. Why do that? Because they've got the same genome. More or less, there, there can be a bit of change of genome uh, following the fusion of egg and sperm. But generally speaking, you can say that identical twins have got similar genomes. I'm just about to publish a paper reproducing a beautiful picture that was made, oh goodness me, I think at least 60 years ago now, of two identical twins, one of whom trained as a weightlifter, the other trained as a runner. Their body physique is totally different. Hmm. The runner has got fantastic leg muscles and is very thin at the top because he doesn't need to carry a big weight. Yes. Uh, in his running. That's how he can go fast because he's, uh, he's not loaded up too much. The weightlifter, my goodness, his arms are so strong, his chest <laughs> is strong. <laughs> and, and by comparison, his legs, of course, they've got to be moderately strong, but the real strength is, is up here, of course. The, the fact is that what we found there is that when you study the difference, this is modern studies now rather than that particular one that was done about 60 years ago, modern studies of um, identical twins in relation to athletic performance, exercise-related performance, show right down at the level of the RNAs that control the genome, the RNAs are different. Wow. Now, that's because somebody decided to become an athlete. Yes. That's not because his genes made him decide that. It's the genes, they say, are the same. Again, what I'm describing here as facts are, when you think about it, fairly obvious. So, again, I'm puzzled by the, apart from my sociological analysis of the big debates in the United States over evolution, I'm very puzzled by why it is there has been so much resistance to these very obvious facts. Now, I come to a very interesting fact, but it's a sociological fact now, not a scientific fact. That was true up to about the time of the Royal Society meeting in 2016, that there was a huge amount of public resistance. Yes. It's gone completely silent. For the last three years, I've been lecturing all over the place, in the United States, in Europe, in East Asia, almost everywhere. I was for a number of years president of the International Union of my subject, Physiological Sciences. And I find that all the oppositions disappeared. I don't get seriously difficult questions anymore. What I get is, okay, what experiment should I be doing? Wow, that's very nice. <laughs> Lovely, isn't it? You see, I'll just give one example. It was from an experimental biology meeting in the United States. It's huge. This is the grand jamboree of maybe 10,000. It's a huge number of people from all the biological sciences. And one of the plenary lecturers gave a lovely lecture on what biochemical changes occur in muscle during exercise. And he was training rats. The rats were either trained to run on treadmills or they were not. So he could then look, again, because these were cloned, okay. similar genomes, he could look at uh, the extent to which 
the biochemical changes, including, of course, RNAs, could change as a consequence of exercise in those that were exercising compared to those that were not. And he found many changes, many biochemical changes. That fits what I said earlier on about the other modern studies of twins in the case of humans. But these were rats or mice. I can't remember which now. So I went up to him afterwards and I said, you've got a colony which is identical genetically with another colony, but the difference is simply the exercise. Have you thought of breeding from them? Now, initially, the penny didn't drop. He couldn't mm. see why I was asking that question. And then he suddenly said, my God, do you think that's really worth doing? Of course, this is landmarkism. This yeah. is the idea that if you, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the, the poor blacksmith, you know, uses his arms all the time to hammer the, the stuff, <laughs> make his iron bits and pieces. Would that pass on to his children? I don't know. I still don't know the answer to that question. But that person could do it. He could find out whether in animals it works. Now, why doesn't he? First of all, he didn't even think of it. You see, mm. he thought, my God, is that even worth doing? <laughs> Oh, my goodness, it's worth doing. Yes. There are many examples now of paternal and maternal effects that pass down the generations. Amongst physiologists, that's not even questioned anymore. It's established fact that there are great transgenerational passings of the lifestyle affecting, of, of the parent affecting the propensity to disease and health of the offspring. And we now know some of the mechanisms, of course. We know, to go back to Darwin, his Gemmules idea, uh, we know that there are little packets. They're so tiny you can't see them under the light microscope. You need electron microscopes to see them that carry information from the soma to the germline. So we know that the Weissmann barrier, which is the idea that the germline is sacrosanct and not in any way influenced by the soma, is clearly broken. The, the Weissman barrier is no longer a barrier. So we've no longer any difficulty in explaining why all of those maternal and paternal effects get passed down through the generations. What's still, though, an interesting fact is that I think if you put a research grant proposal in to do the experiment I suggested to that American scientist who was giving mm -hmm. a lecture of the experimental biology <laughs> The chances are that people will say, oh, that's a way out experiment. It's not worth doing. Anyway, we know that Lamarckism is a lot of old rubbish, you see, so don't even do it. Sorry, well, so there are fashions in science, of course. There's no doubt about that. And, and committees uh, are influenced by that as much as, of course, by the science itself. So this comes back to another reason why we formed the third way. We thought it was very important to give the message, particularly to young scientists, that it is worth doing these experiments. Of course, they may not work. Of course, we don't know the answer. That's why you do them. Yes. Of course, you don't know whether it will upset standard evolutionary biology. But what do you do with theories? You test them to destruction. That's the way science works. And I'm intrigued by the fact that younger people I talk to now are looking at doing precisely such experiments. That's greatly encouraging for me.
It's very exciting for me as well. I'm out of the lab now. I've been out for a number of years of starting in a different career, but I wish wow. I'd um, had your your influence while I was I was there. I was <laughs> I wasn't exposed. You're, you're to echoing it. what I find amongst young people now. You see, where where I go as I lecture around the world is that I find that I get young people. And not so young, but people still with active laboratories coming up to me and saying, well, what is worth doing? You know, is what I'm doing a, a way of trying to test the ideas and test them to destruction? The key message from the third way, I think, is this, that nature is more wonderful than we imagined. Mm. It uses processes that we didn't even think could happen. <laughs> And so there's a huge amount of great work there to be done. It'll be Nobel Prize winning work if people can do it. So that's my main message to the young. And it's what I find as a reaction around the world as I lecture. I get people asking me, you know, what exactly is now worth doing? Thank you very much, Dennis. It's, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Cause, and I think that's a good note to end on. It's a very encouraging... Yeah. I like to end on encouraging notes because I, <laughs> I, I'm sometimes presented as a fairly old sort of, well, I am old, incidentally, <laughs> a disgruntled chap. I'm not really. I'm actually very positive. I've been very positive throughout my career, but I've been very, very surprised by the reactions that occurred in the early part of the mm. 2000s when I first started publishing openly my dissent <laughs> by first of all the reactions which were essentially his the the latest moronic attempt to discredit neo-darwinism <laughs> but i'm now very encouraged indeed by the fact that the reaction from young people is what are the good experiments to do and there are many well i i appreciate your your inspiration and, and the fact you've persisted it's yes. it's you know, hopefully, I'm sure it will inspire a um, a whole new generation of scientists who consider, like you said, na nature as as a wonderful thing and something worth really trying to get to grips of with. And not, I mean, the idea of reductionism, obviously in itself, of reducing things isn't necessarily an issue when you study things in isolation. But as a philosophy, that you have to look at life that way. You've um, got it. It's, it's the studying things in isolation that is the problem. Mm -hmm. You've also then got to go back. Reductionism is fine. If you do that, that's great. But you've also got to go back and ask, how does it work in the real organism? Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Professor Dennis Noblet. And I hope we can speak again sometime in the future. Okay. I'd be delighted to come back in a year or two when you've got some reactions. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> bye. Bye bye for now then. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. Evolution 2.0